This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellas from RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast, also joining you from Wurundjeri Country because we are in the same place, PK, for same a change. studio, which is a little a freaky. A little bit strange, isn't it? It's been it? like, like two years. Yeah, like <laughs> even having someone else in your studio is a little thingy. And now I've been on planes, the whole thing. Okay, now you're freaking me out. Yeah, you're, you're double vaccinated, you're wearing masks. It's all good. It's I'm going to be okay. Um, anyway, soon we're going to be... Uh, joined by David Spears, host of Insiders. There's plenty going on, PK, most of it overseas. Climate politics at the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, touted as, you know, one of the last opportunities for the global community to act swiftly and decisively to limit global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius, which they haven't done anyway, acted decisively and swiftly so far at least. But PK, here in Australia, important as the climate debate is, and it's crucial, it's really been completely overshadowed by a diplomatic row between the French President Emmanuel Macron and Scott Morrison that, how shall I say, it's gone thermonuclear. AUKUS deal was very bad news for France, but not just for France, because I think it's very bad news for credibility of, of Australia and very bad news for the trust that great partners can have vis-à-vis Australia. So I had a very direct discussion with Prime Minister Morrison about this issue. You have to be two and you have to behave in line and consistently with this value. Do you think he lied to you? I don't think. I know. From my perspective, I must say that I think the statements that were made uh, questioning Australia's integrity um, and the slurs that have been placed on Australia, not me, I've got broad shoulders, I can deal with that, but those slurs, I'm not going to cop sledging of Australia. Okay, PK. Scott Morrison, they're clearly positioning that uh, claim by Emmanuel Macron that he was lied to by Scott Morrison as a slur against Australia, as if an insult to him is an insult to Australia. Tricky, but not exactly accurate. Not accurate no? at all. If, no? No. <laughs> I heard the entire press conference with Emmanuel Macron and the Australian media who it's important to note the Prime Minister accused of taking selfies with Macron and did not take any selfies with Macron. It was a rigididge doorstop yeah. and it was good work it was. by our journalistic it, exactly, pack, particularly that, Andrew Probin. Yeah, that's right. He saw the President and he, you know, it's that thing. You've got to go, get in their face. We've all done it. And You've got to them. get in there and get in there and get an answer, right? Um, so they get in his face. And he, he's very happy to be interviewed, isn't he, Fran? He's clearly wanting to make these comments and he does not waste any time. I mean, I, I thought it was an incredibly undiplomatic comment, right? And I think we should criticise the French president for the way that he dealt with the diplomatic situation as well. But he, he made it very clear that he loved his time in Australia, that he loved the Australian people. He talked about the fact that we had uh, fought alongside the French in wars, had the same values. In fact... A warm and honourable relationship. He built a story which was not slurring Australia or sledging Australia and then was very directly critical of Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Not all Prime Ministers 
this particular guy. And so uh, the Prime Minister made a judgment, and I think it was a very political, domestic judgment, that he would conflate all those comments to be anti-Australian so that uh, he, he could be the guy defending Australia to try and deal with what was reputational damage to him. Yeah, and he'll, we'll come back to this with David, but yes, and he, he got more and more pointed in that campaign as the days went on because this didn't disappear, this this uh, sledge from the um, from the French president. And in the end, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was reduced to I know whose side I'm on, which is a really, you know, pointed comment uh, that he's reduced this argument down to. It's whose side are you on, Australia's or France? Yeah, you know, it's the nationalism. Side. It's complete nationalism. We'll talk about that a bit more with, with David because that uh, has all sorts of implications. But Scott Morrison, it's, it's, he really has a skill at this. Um, you know, that's why people call him Scotty from marketing. Like he's very good at turning a message. That's what he's done. The issue is How's it going to work for him? Has this damaged him? It feeds into, uh, you know, some of the story that Labor and others have been building around him for ages. There was a pile on, of course, Malcolm Turnbull um, contributed. We talk about all of that, but um, it really has dominated the trip we, because this was, you know, this was meant to be all about climate, this trip. And there was, last week we were talking about how Scott Morrison was going to be under pressure at the Glasgow conference because Australia's lack of ambition and, and lack of detail and how we're going to get to our 2050 net zero emissions pledge, not even even doing anything on our 2030 pledge. Um, but the Prime Minister really seemed to get off lightly when it came to climate, don't you think? Yeah, because, again, this over overshadowed the entire European trip. Look, he turns up to Glasgow. Uh, he delivers that headline, net zero by 2050. Technology, not taxes, in the Australian way. The Australian way. Uh, he delivers that and really doesn't doesn't get a lot of scrutiny for it, let's be honest. Doesn't get the scrutiny I thought that he would get and that I think our nation deserved for, you know, waiting to the end and, and really hedging bets on technology rather than And, and to be fair, now. I think the reason he didn't was because when you're on the world stage like that, you realise we're a minnow. I mean, Russia and China weren't there. They are the giants of, you know, emissions reduction and geopo geopolitical sort of giants. We are... A minnow. So even though we are heavy polluters, and even though the signalling is very important for our for our Five Eyes allies in particular, you know, really we're a kind of a big player on that stage. And a good point you make. I mean, China um, saying net zero by twenty by twenty sixty, India saying net zero by the you know a decade later. So we are dealing really with the developing world. I mean, you know, China's sort of hybrid these days, but mm. uh, the developing world. Powerful but developing. Yeah, still developing. And that's the point, right? They're saying we want to develop and this is the conundrum the world is facing. But yeah, the, the, the this time was meant to be climate week. And I do think it's unfortunate that this diplomatic row has dominated the way it has, although, you know, that's that's news, that's journalism. We had to cover this. This is an extraordinary thing for the French president to say, and this submarine issue has been extraordinarily played out. But this is the, and I'm going to quote him, Kevin Rudd, um, you know, definitely a leader with many flaws, but on this one, he was right. It is the greatest challenge of our time. 
it was a very important meeting and yet Australia, I don't think, in our own nation even, getting the scrutiny it should have for the way we delivered on that. Yeah, and I know a lot of uh, breakfast listeners have made clear that point too. They haven't liked the fact that we've been um, sort of convulsed by this diplomatic row and, and really not focusing. I mean, it's not entirely true. We've Luckily, I've we've got done, two and a half hours of both. live radio every day so I can do both. But you're right, it has shifted the focus of that debate here in Australia for a while. It'll come back because it does remain the greatest existential challenge of our time. Yeah, it, and it continues and the work's not done, right? I mean, there's going to continue to be. We've got an election looming. And on that, actually, we've heard now several Liberals, including Peter Dutton, make the point about the French that, you know, this is all about their domestic political paradigm and the fact that they have an election next year. Hello. Jeez, who else has an election, Fran? <laughs> hmm. By May, Scott <laughs> Morrison will be going to the polls. That's right. So obviously, uh, let's just, let's let's call it even. Maybe there are on both sides some uh, domestic electoral politics being played here. Should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> David Spears, host of Insiders, welcome to the party room. Thank you, PK. Lovely to be back in the party room, especially in an actual room. In with, an actual with room. With both of you. This with is, all of us having a party. This is a treat. I think three's a party, isn't this it? This is the most exciting thing that's when happened to me in two years. When was the last time we did this? Seriously. Uh, in fact, I'm going to call it Two's Company, Three's a Party. <laughs> In this day and age. Let's go. <laughs> you party animal. Um, David, welcome. David, Australia's commitment to stronger climate action has been pretty underwhelming compared mm. to a lot of other wealthy nations. But then again, Russia and China didn't even turn up to the Glasgow conference mm. um, and they certainly didn't turn up their ambitions. So in contrast, we ended up not looking so bad. Um, I'm not sure... Why, given the general lack of ambition in the leaders' pledges in Glasgow, the Prime Minister says there's, quote, cause for optimism. Do you think he's true? What have we got to be optimistic about? Well, look, I think compared to the developed world, you know, Australia is still taking a very uh, unambitious position and quite a disappointing position when it comes to tackling this problem and keeping 1.5 alive, which is meant to be the goal of Glasgow. But you're right, compared to the big emitters, the developing countries, China, India, Russia, um, yeah, it's been a pretty disappointing conference so far. Unless some mm. rabbit's pulled out of the hat, I don't think it necessarily will be. It doesn't look like this is going to achieve, yes, some steps, but certainly not the uh, the 1.5 Some degrees. steps, but not on those pledges, right? The steps no. are around deforestation or the, the methane, methane pledge, yep. which Australia didn't, sign, uh, up didn't sign up to. So there's been work on issues that will get us there and businesses there in droves, and they're, they're raring to go and sort of get first yep. mover advantage with government subsidies and all the rest of it. So they, you know... That brings us, I suppose, to the technology taxes. Yeah, well, because Scott Morrison has been spruiking what he's been spruiking domestically. He goes to COP26 and talks about uh, technology over taxes. How's this got us out from under the kind of criticism of a lack of ambition, though, David? I mean, realistically? No, no, no. And look, there's obviously a couple of ways of looking at this. In terms of um, the global goal of trying to tackle this issue, this problem, and keep temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees, Australia is not particularly helping. Yes, the net zero by 2050 is important, but you know, no change on 2030 and no, no agreement on Can the Can I just theme. interrupt rudely? But yeah. he did in his speech, the Prime Minister, talk about um, 35%, right? He put mm. that in the speech, even though it's not the official it's not the position. Target. No, it's they the put projection. it in a document as well that yeah. they were giving around. I, I want to get your commentary on that because that's a pretty... 
you know, that's because he knows you can't turn up with the old one, right? But he's trying to have it both ways. Well, it's the classic sending one message yeah. to the world in Glasgow and another message to the Queensland coal seats and the Nationals back in Australia that, no, we're not shifting the target. Um, but, yeah, on the specifics where we have seen, you know, the methane target, more than 100 countries signing up to this, the urging of the US and Europe, Australia's not. I mean, you know, countries like uh, Brazil uh, have signed up to this, Canada uh, you know, some big agricultural producers mm. as we are, uh, but we've not. And I think that is um, emblematic of the approach we've taken. Now, politically, uh, and if we can look at the politics of this, I don't think the Glasgow summit has been that bad for Scott Morris in terms of his own domestic uh, efforts, what he's trying to do domestically, um, because we haven't seen you know a radical shift at Glasgow from the world. Uh, you know, I think he's got away with it. Now he's had problems on other fronts, which we'll talk about. But in terms of the climate summit in, it, itself, you know, I don't think there's any net change for, for Scott Morrison compared to where he was before heading overseas. Yeah, and I think the the line from the conference so far that I've seen comes from the Pacific nations. There's only a few of them there, but they're sort of representing the region, and they're under pressure. I mean, yeah. Tuvalu, they say, will be underwater in 10 years. Mm. They are not impressed with Australia's level of ambition. They want more. They want more money. And the uh, the Fiji Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarani, he's a pretty straight-talking guy. He, he In his address, he says, pick up your buckets and start bailing. Yeah. And look, these are meant to be, what's the, the, the word that Scott Morrison uses in relation to the Pacific family? Yeah. You know, he always talks about representing them and, and being part of a family together. They are making it clear, Bainimarama in particular, that they want Australia to do more on the 2030 target. Um, Tuvalu, uh, at their um, their little uh, country stage at the COP summit, apparently have uh, polar bears, life-size polar bears with life jackets on to make the point. Yeah. Um, but that they, this, this is, is the thing the about this. They are the most real, tangible example of the immediate threat, right? They... This is their their trajectory in 10 years. This is not some 2050 business. This is real. Yeah, but Scott Morrison's whole pitch is that, well, that's why the technology, not taxes, um, plan is the way to go because we need to get the technology and, and make it work for those countries mm, sure, that are under threat. Who's disagreeing with that? Well, no one's disagreeing with it, but he's trying to make it into a strength. And ultimately, if that were the case, it also has the dual function of benefiting Australian tech technology developers too because here's a new yeah. market for them yeah. in the region. So it's I agree with you. I'm every time I hear the technology, of course technology yeah. is going to be a huge part of the answer. It's but to think you, that we can't yeah. we can get there without doing anything about our emissions output is um you know, and focusing on that, I think, is just well. They think they are wrong. doing something. They're just clearly not doing enough based on what the science. Well, how do is you incentivise this technology, right? And, and look, the government's absolutely right that some of it is under under development now, mm. like hydrogen. Mm. Some of it's yet to be dreamt up. You know, no doubt that that will that will come in the decades to come. But how do you incentivise that? The way they're doing it is with some taxpayers' money. Uh, although it is pretty fuzzy on exactly how much uh, will be needed here, but certainly no push, no regulation, no mechanism, no price, nothing that's going to require... Every possible single you could have, they are not sending. Not no, doing. but can I just say, I think it's worth noting, Matthias Corman, right? Oh. 
Oh, God. The tears coming, right? Remember him? He was the finance minister. He's got a pretty important job now, David. He's the OECD Secretary General, and it is a very different tone that we're hearing from Matthias Gorman. Now, he, mind taxes now. He argue, your, your interview I with him, I couldn't believe it. Well, he argues that he's consistent because he's always <gasps> believed that a global, a globally consistent carbon price could be the most efficient way of, of, of tackling the problem. And look, by the way, he's right about that. If yeah. everyone could hold hands and agree to this, it would be the most efficient way to do it. But here's, here's the point. Was abandoning the carbon price we had in Australia, don't forget this was the Gillard one, was meant to then link up with the European yeah. carbon price and mm, be a building that block. That was the plan. Was getting rid of that, was scrapping the tax, uh, to remind you of oh. the three-word slogan, really helping in that he cause it a of, a, glo- of yep. a global carbon price. He yeah. called it a hoax when he was the finance minister. Yeah. It's funny how whatever job you might have at the time means that your views suddenly shift. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been fascinating too to watch uh, Morrison and other government ministers distance themselves from Cormann now. He's not there representing Australia. No, no, no. He's talking on behalf of the OECD. And they got him the job. Yeah, that's right. No, shameless, I think, is the word that comes to mind. Um, David, we were just talking earlier about the fact that um, this climate conference, this trip overseas, has really been dominated for Scott Morrison, not by pressure about lack of ambition on emissions, yeah. but by the subs deal. And um, and and straight off the block, almost before, I think it was before he'd landed, the US President, Joe Biden, really sort of got in there first and kicked this up. He, he did in that press conference with the French president, said the whole... Um, retracting of the um, subs deal had been handled and the announcement of AUKUS had been handled clumsily. He said it was clumsy. He said what we did was clumsy, not done with a lot of grace, and I didn't realise you'd been given no notice. I, honest to God, didn't know that. Yeah. And and the question there was, well, who was he accusing uh, for that? that Australia, Australia. He was throwing (laughs) Morrison under the bus. And this derailed the, 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 the whole trip for Scott Morrison, right, before he even landed. Don't forget, Morrison finally took a call from Macron just before leaving, right, mm. the day before leaving, finally, six weeks after upsetting the French so badly, uh, he gets a call from Macron. Now, we don't know what was said on the call, but we know Morrison's version of it was, look, it was, it was positive, we're on the way back to something more normal. This was the this was breaking the ice, starting to thaw things. I think we know that the French version of that call was very the different. The French version the was very version. different, right? And and because uh, then we can come to the actual uh, exchange that they had and what followed. But when Biden Biden made those comments uh, in an effort to repair his own relationship with France uh, at the expense of obviously uh, putting Morrison right in it, um, that then uh, lit a match, right, on this mm. whole issue. Mm. Uh, and then the Australian journalists, I think led by uh, the ABC's Andrew Probin, uh, spied on your probes. probes, Spied uh, Macron finishing his own uh, remarks with the French media, um, approached him, started asking questions, and then bang, you get that uh, the, the clear view of the French president uh, as to where things lie, and that is that he believes Scott Morrison lied to him. Yeah, and we've heard that earlier, and then that was turbocharged by uh, a former Prime Minister, mm-hmm. Malcolm Turnbull, who was at the Glasgow conference. Let's just have a listen to this. Tell you what Scott Morrison has done. He has sacrificed Australian honour, Australian security and Australian sovereignty. Now, that is a shocking thing for an Australian Prime Minister to do. Oh, he's lied to me on many occasions. Scott has always had a reputation for telling lies. So, not once, <laughs> twice, but thrice, I think, he went on to basically talk about Scott Morrison's reputation for telling lies. And not just that. I mean, you, you heard his comments there. He sacrificed Australian honour, security and sovereignty. That is 
about as serious and as damning as it gets about a prime minister. Mm. Look, Malcolm Turnbull has been on this progression of criticism when it comes to Scott Morrison, yeah. and I think it's really hit. It's hit 11. It's hit 11. It's hit 15. I mean, that that was so over the top uh, that I, I just wonder you know, how much this is actually going to hurt Morrison. I mean, sure, Labor will... Or how much it might hurt Malcolm lines. Turnbull. I mean, that's what I mean. Yeah. I think you know he's he's really crossed that line, that line now into territory where often less is more. I think when it comes yeah. to criticism from a former prime minister, but this the repetitive nature of the Turnbull criticism and the extremity of it now, you just wonder whether it's really going to have as much. Of I damage. think that's a good point. But what he's trying to do, right? It's quite deliberate. Is paint a picture of Scott Morrison for being routinely a liar. This is the same p- yeah. picture that Labor's been trying to paint, that uh, that he's tricky with the truth. Think all the way back to Hawaii, you know, and and kind of smoke and mirrors about where he was yep. at that time. And I think that's an, it's a relevant example that Labor and this has is been a problem trying- for Morrison. This is. is this is a problem for Morrison. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and I think this is where you know the the, the collective uh, words of Turnbull, but p- particularly Macron, and I think Macron's. Uh, language. You're hearing this from a, a major world leader. Um, yes, this is going to damage and and uh, Morrison, and it feeds into this. You know whether it's uh, the bushfires. Uh, you know mm. you can think of all, all sorts of small examples, but even even you know his his language this week, which has been changing. Right, so he gets called a liar by by Macron, and what does he do? He does a couple of things. He leaks the text message. Right, and we can talk about that. But mm. he also shifts his position dramatically on the French submarines. Now, don't forget when he cancelled the deal back in September, this is only, what, six weeks ago, he denied this had anything to do with cost blowouts or time yeah. delays in the delivery of the subs. He says, no, it's not based in fact. He said, in fact, I'll, I'll pull out the quote here because uh, he, he said at the time he was aware of those criticisms. He didn't believe they were founded in fact. In no way does this reflect, he said, in any shape or form on the attack class submarine, the Naval Group and the commitment of the French government and indeed President Macron. After being called a liar, however, very different. He he goes after the French submarines. He's saying there were a lot of issues mm. in relation to delays in the project and, of course, the costs. That's not what he originally said. It's, it's not, not what the Defence Secretary, Greg Moriarty, what, said exactly. only a week ago. I mean, in Senate estimates, they were very clear. And I actually mis- made a mistake this week on air because I had read plenty of uh, analysis yeah. saying that the, the French contract was a dud. It was, there were time delays, I think that's fair to say, in, in reaching some of the targets. But in cost... And, look, and to, in fairness, there, there may well have been. This was widely reported. Uh, there were various. There was an audit review into the program. There were problems there. Yes, but the department at Senate estimates said the the costs are the Greg, costs yeah. were coming in as we had agreed. He said, mm. yeah, Greg Moriarty said there was no cost blowout. Uh, he said the contract was terminated. This is just last week. The contract was terminated because our requirements have changed, not because of the poor performance by the Naval Group yep. or Lockheed Martin Australia. And this is the issue, right? Back to being slippery with the truth. Uh, we do have a memory. Look at you. You can find the quotes. Yeah. <laughs> what is correct? You cannot argue that both are correct. But you just said, let's go back to, so we're going, leaking of the text message. Yeah, so- I want to talk about the leaking of the text message because I spoke to Barnaby Joyce. The Prime Minister has not denied, for instance, that his office leaked the text. I spoke to Barnaby Joyce. He really, yeah. you know, he put it up to 11 and said, what else are you going to do? You've been called a liar you, you know, you need to basically provide the evidence. Now, Labor says if you look at the actual text, it does not prove the point that Scott Morrison wanted to make by leaking it. But let's go to whether it's appropriate to leak 
the text Look, of the I, I don't think so. Look, I think Macron was, it was extraordinary and undiplomatic to accuse it Scott was. Morrison of being a liar, right? But it was also extraordinary and undiplomatic in the way Morrison replied. Uh, the, the, the better response, I think, would have been to simply restate Australia's national security decision here um, without burying the French submarine delivery and you know, starting to talk about cost blowouts and so on. Just say, look, um, we had to make the best decision for our national security. Restate what he said in September. Mm, mm. Uh, this was you know, changed environment, i.e. China. We've had to make this call. We've got this opportunity to go with uh, our close allies, the United States. We know there's disappointment. We're going to do it. That I think, sure, they'd still be disappointed and furious and all of that, but instead he's 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 dug this new hole by leaking a text message from another leader. Now that, as the French ambassador pointed out, um, raises a question mark for every other world leader in dealing with Morrison. Is their correspondence going to be leaked at some point? Weaponized? Will be weaponized. It was quite a lot. Will be weaponized. And also beyond that, the other thing that happened was around this time to shore up the case that, um, oh yeah, he did know. You know, we had told him. Not just the, yeah. the text message, but then Cameron Stewart and the Australian got hold of a high-level, highly secure document signed between Australian, US, and UK officials. Apparently, I haven't seen it outlining. The the timeline of who would be told when, which which was given as evidence of shoring up Scott Morrison's um, line on this. But I think we need to stop at the point that he got his hands on this confidential briefing that, yeah. you know, is signed, it was presumably confidential between our closest allies and it's been leaked to try and shore up the Prime Minister's case. I and mean, you're right to highlight this, Fran, because this leak was aimed not at the French but at Biden. At Biden. And at the, yep. So this arguably is the more concerning element of the week, right? That Biden threw Morrison under the bus and then in response to that, Morrison or the government or someone yep. has leaked a, a document aimed at trying to undermine or, or counter Biden's So um, what's the calculation here that your own domestic political uh, impact and fending off allegations that you're sneaky, which is what you know um, Malcolm Turnbull called him this week, is more important than the ongoing high-level you know, trust That's, and relationship with the US? That's exactly what I think I, you've I, decided. I, yeah. And look, I don't doubt that it, it, it's quite likely the Australian government and Morrison feel as though they've been absolutely thrown under a bus by Biden, that the, the, the Americans were kept in the loop 100% on what the French were being told and weren't told and so on, uh, and, and feel dumped in it and feel like they're quite entitled to set the record straight. But there is a cost in international relations, yes. in diplomacy, in doing what they've done. And the cost is to our closest ally, our forever friends or forever partners, mm -hmm. as they're called under AUKUS, uh, this partnership, and it's, it's a bumpy start. It is. And it's ultimately like, it, and then it goes to ego and you've got to analyse ego in all of this, right? Yes. And of course it hurt the Prime Minister's ego. I don't know. It would hurt my ego too if someone yes. called me a liar, like whatever, and I really believed I wasn't a liar. But that's where you have to suck it up for your country and, and think, okay, what, what is the strategic outlook here? How do I manage it? And that's what he wasn't able to do. Or is he more focused on the domestic audience here? I think that's it, 100%. And when that's why Penny Wong, you know, shadow foreign minister, came out so hard against them. I thought Labor might be a bit coward once, as in not C-O-W-A-R-D, but the other one. Yeah. You know, once Scott Morrison started throwing around terms like, you know, whose side are you on? But Penny Wong was very, very strong when we spoke to her this morning. And her major point is that uh, Scott Morrison is not on your side, as in Australia's side. He's on his side. She thinks it's completely through a domestic Domestic political prism. Yeah, I think, 
look, Labor, it's understandable that they've jumped all over this uh, this week. It's not often you get other world leaders uh, calling the Prime Minister a liar and, and, and uh, you know, in the, in the case of the US President, uh, suggesting that um, we weren't all that upfront and um, uh, responsible in the way we dealt with all of this. But, but I do think Labor will need to be a little careful here because we're yet to see how this is going to play domestically. And, you know, I, I doubt Morrison will want to keep running this issue, but you can see where he's heading on this by the end of the week, yeah. right? It's about I'm making a tough decision in our national security mm. interests. China is showing up as a big concern for voters in, you know, a lot of focus group research. You talk to both sides of politics, they'll agree. Um, it may not be number one, but it's it's up there as a mm. growing concern for for the electorate. Uh, if and and there's a view I certainly know amongst liberal backbenchers, this is one area they reckon they can weaponise against Labor in the election. Yeah, I know and this he's comes very back good to, at this. Scott but Morrison. he's very good at this. I know this is talking about the raw politics of the whole situation. But yeah, this, which I know a lot of people listening will be offended know, by. Exactly, but this is this is the prism through which you know we're looking at this as well at the moment because this is a political consideration. Uh, and if Morrison can weaponise this as I'm the guy who's willing to take tough decisions wear international flak, uh, but to protect us uh, in this changing and more dangerous um, region, uh, you know, stick with me. And now, of course, he says, I want to move on and, and <laughs> is hoping that the electorate will hear that of, yeah, let's stop talking about all of that and let's start focusing on what, you know, really affects our day-to-day lives. And that's the messaging he's trying to get there. Yeah. But while I think that he would probably can get out from under in terms of the electorate, the lying claims yeah, from the I'd... French president and others, the text message, that does lead into the issue of trust. And Labor has been pushing that trust message for a long time now. And everyone knows it's not very trustworthy if you're leaking text messages It's an from overreaction. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, right now, this is a terribly uh, messy week. Uh, it's, a, it's a bad week another on the one. world stage. For, another one for the, for the Prime Minister, but particularly at an international level. The leaking of a text message, which, let's face it, wasn't exactly conclusive. It didn't exactly prove that Macron uh, knew they were going to lose the subs deal. Um, it, yeah, it's it does raise a question mark about whether our Prime Minister overreacts in the heat of the moment to Australia's detriment. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. Look, I just want to do this briefly and just change the tune and talk about something that I think is really important in this country, uh, sort of state issue, but really with federal implications. After Premier Gladys Berejiklian appeared in front of the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption, which has mm. been a really important thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks, many of the details that emerge have raised eyebrows. Now, ICAC is investigating whether the former New South Wales Premier had breached the public's trust by not declaring a conflict of interest with her because she had this romantic relationship with this Wagga Wagga MP, Daryl Maguire. But this is what I want to talk about here on this mm. podcast. One detail that hasn't been talked enough about is her comments about pork barrelling. Um, the misuse of government funds for the purpose of gaining votes. Here's what Gladys Berejiklian had to say when being grilled by the ICAC. At the end of the day, uh, whether we like it or not, that's democracy. Each party puts forward their list of projects or what they're convincing the electorate about what they're going to do. Um, and this had been a long-standing, long-standing commitment. But it's a regular, a regular political activity that governments try to win seats, try to keep their seats, as do opposition. So I don't think it's a surprise to anybody in and around government to know that we threw money at seats in order to keep them. Oh, whoa. That's democracy. Heaven help us. (laughs) The issue is not the list, right? The issue is how you get on the list and how those judgments are made for a share of government funds for projects that are judged to be in the national interest. Yeah, I just think, you know, how many times 
sports roads, car parks, um, you, you name it, and, and this that's playing out in New South Wales. How many times do we have to hear about these grant programs, the way decisions are taken on doling out our money to help keep a certain party in power, um, you know, before someone, someone is willing to change the way grant programs run, uh, take some of these decisions out of the hands of, of, uh, of politicians, um, maybe not completely, but at least ensure there is some greater level of mm. independent or expert oversight about the way these funds are dished out. Yeah, because I think, I mean, I mean, Gladys Berejiklian is right in, in a sense that this has always happened. And, you know, way back, Labor Cabinet Minister federally, Ros Kelly, had to go because yeah. of sports rorts and the whiteboard. And What she's wrong about, though, is normalising it. Well, which, yes, and it's happening more and more, I think. And we have an Auditor General, we have we have checks and balances in there, but they're just being ignored. Yeah. And there seems to be no political cost, barely any political I mean, cost anyway. I mean, we're at the anyway. point now where the Auditor General really should be looking at every one of these grant programs in forensic detail, as as, as they've done on occasion. But and even when they do, this government, at least, is it. toughing it out, right? Yeah, look, with Gladys Berejiklian, I mean, what, is the suggestion here that Every MP uh, would be treated the way Daryl Maguire was treated. Well, that's what she tried to argue. I mean, every is... marginal seat that's on your side of politics. And, and <laughs> that would be a full-time was... job alone for a Premier if that was the case. And Daryl like... Maguire's seat was hardly the most marginal of seats, let's not forget. So I just think it does stretch credibility to think that uh, this is how it worked for everyone in the Liberal Party, in her government. Or that it's justifiable. Or that it's justifiable. David... David, thank you so much. Sorry, you know that's a Shit's Creek reference. Oh, no, knows it. No. I've even done it on your show. Oh, no, I've had it a few times. David. Love um, the show. Yeah. And love this show. Thank you, guys. We love all the shows. Thanks, David. Bye. See you guys. Thanks, Busy. See you. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time and Parliament's not sitting, so we're the only question time in this uh, national debate. We've got the edge. That's it. We've always got the edge, actually. Um, the question comes from Andrew, who writes, Now that international travel rules are starting to loosen, my question is about the journalists travelling with the Prime Minister on overseas trips. How do news organisations pick who gets to go? Is there ever any jealousy within newsrooms? With the PM's official plane now big enough for journos to hop along for the ride, does the PMO have total discretion over which outlets get to join him on board? Okay. Well, I haven't been operating as part of the press gallery for a long time, but in my time, the PMO did have no discretion over who got to go and they never, well, they never tried to exercise it anyway. I presume if they, if they'd wanted to, they could have, but within your news organisation, it was generally the political correspondent, or maybe it might be a foreign correspondent or, you know, someone like that who gets to go. Some of it's about cost, some of it's about seniority and uh, specialty. Yeah. That's generally how it's worked out. It's a, a, and not a, every news organisation gets – there's not that many seats on the plane. So um, th- where the Prime Minister's office may have some say is, you know, just working out which news organisations get to go. But it's always, for instance, the public broadcaster is usually afforded a seat as far as I know. Absolutely. Most, most of the main news outlets will get a spot um, or a couple if they have the capacity. 
and it is about seniority. Um, if you're a political editor, uh, like Probin's just gone, right? Mm. Um, Andrew Probin. Yeah, and, I used to go on them. Yeah, that's right. Like, you get to go. Um, I've been a political correspondent. I've travelled with prime ministers. Um, you ask about jealousies. Uh, I've gotten to go on less significant trips, but still gone on trips. I've like, gone on some beauties, I have yeah, to say. Like, it depends. You know, it depends where they're going and how significant the trip is yeah. and whether the political editor sometimes says, oh, I, I don't want I won't go, go on this one. You go to the South Pacific Forum. That's right, because, they, you know, they want to stay back and do some other stories or write some columns. It's really like that. In terms of jealousies, look, I'm going to let you in on that secret. Welcome to any workplace. Of course, if you're ambitious, you want to go along with a prime minister. Are there jealousies? Yeah, professional rivalries exist, but most people are collegiate and professional. So while I've wanted to go on everything, every time, and I have, because I look, does anyone surprised? No, I have not me. No, not at all. But I've been polite about whatever's going on because it's just the way it rolls, right? You just work hard and you hope, you know, you get to go. Yeah, and they are. And I have been on quite a lot of them and they were really fabulous to go on, but they are also really hard work because you're working at opposite time zones and so it's it's no picnic generally. Um, but, but, you know, they're good. What's good now is to see them back on the, the Prime Minister VIP, the VIP jet, because it used to be for a while there the plane was not was too old or not big enough or something, and they chucked the press gallery, the press corps off the prime ministerial plane, so everyone had to travel commercial, which meant you lost that extra thing you got, which was when the prime minister comes down the back of the plane halfway across to Europe or something, and you get briefings and things like that. It's really valuable. Now they're back on board, which I think is is good. Yeah, I think so too. Send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And don't forget, follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or, of course, any favourite podcast app. That's it for The Party Room this week. So nice to be here in person. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.